Yes. Um, Lucia Angel? Present. Neha Banger? B. Franks Walker? B. Franks Walker? She's here. Oh, okay. Okay. Witcher Harvey? Loretta Mellon? I'm here. Eric Murphy? Mark Smith? Here. Derek So? Here. Ali Yesin? We have a crime? I think we're going here. Yeah, here. Uh, yeah, that's only five, so we need one more. Yeah, I'm here. Oh, great. Ali? Okay, great. I must have lost connection for a second. Thank you. Okay, great. Okay, perfect. Thank you. We have six. Linda. Thank you. Structure as last time, since I think these are the two kind of um, 
main things going on, obviously not just the Alameda County budget process, but I think that, that definitely affects our process here at Alameda Health System. Um, I'm focusing on the county-wide process more um, as a way to just think about what's happening across cities, counties, everywhere, and how that affects homelessness and the underlying health issues of the population we're responsible for caring for. Um, so we can go ahead and just jump right into the uh, COVID-19 homeless response. So this was as of last week when I put this together, we were at 117 cases among people experiencing homelessness. And those numbers continue to stay about evenly split among sheltered and unsheltered people experiencing homelessness. Again, these numbers are based on the HUD um, definition of homelessness, which is really stringent. You have to either be living in a homeless shelter or living in a place that's not meant for human habitation. So probably the case rates among people who meet our definition of homelessness, which is, you know, people who are also couch surfing, um, would be, you know, I would guess somewhere, you know, at, at least double this and probably higher than that. Um, but we don't really have any reliable way of, of measuring those numbers specifically. Um, the outbreak responses have continued roughly at the same pace as last month. So we have typically like one or two outbreaks a week in a shelter or in an encampment. Um, and typically those case numbers are still, you know, lower than five cases overall. We just define an outbreak as even an individual case in a, in a congregate or homeless setting in our county. Um, and I think that continues to reflect the really good job that we're doing here with um, efforts to work with the street outreach providers um, and efforts to work with the shelter providers to do a lot of good prevention work and then follow up on cases really, really quickly make sure we're um, understanding what's happening and make sure we're making sure we're doing everything we can to interrupt transmission, including helping people um, isolate at hotels if they're amenable and helping them just um, isolate in place, even if they, um, if they can't you know, go to a hotel for one reason or another, making sure we do food delivery and people have access to bathrooms and hygiene. So uh, I continue to be really, really um, you know, impressed at the response that's happening countywide, which is led by our county healthcare for the homeless partners, but involves just, you know, hundreds of partners literally around the county and city government and community based organizations, um, really kind of anchored by these two weekly calls that happen every Wednesday, you know, that have that have hundreds of people on those calls. Um, it's really just a tremendous example of, of coordination. Um, I think these numbers in homelessness kind of parallel the overall outbreak, which hospitalizations is um, probably the one of the best numbers to track in terms of the burden of disease because it doesn't tend to go up or down based on testing rates. So our hospitalizations in Alameda County was around 200 hospitalized people, um, and that was in late July, and we were actually down a little bit lower in the 160 to 170 range right now in the hospital. Um, so I think you know we're we're not seeing a disproportionate uh, uh, impact among people experiencing homelessness, and you know we're seeing that overall um, we've we've at least weathered another peak. Uh, you know, in the last few weeks, um, we don't really know. I think one expert that you know, I've heard talk about say you know we should think about this less as waves than as a forest fire. Um, and the forest fire is just going to continue to burn as long as there's fuel. And in this case. You know, the, the fuel in the analogy is people who don't have immunity to coronavirus. And so we still probably have had way, way, way less than, you know, a third of the population infected with coronavirus. 
um, which means there's plenty of people who are not immune and we're going to need to continue these efforts at masking and social distancing and all of the different controls we're implementing inside of our own healthcare system and around the community um, probably for, for much, much longer um, in order to continue to keep the hospitalizations um, and the case rates where they are right now. Um, just, uh, I think the next slide moves on to talking about the hotels. So um, this is a uh, really tiny font, which reflects that there's a lot more hotel sites than there were the last meeting. Uh, so we actually have opened uh, now, I think in between last meeting and this meeting, there's four new sites that have been opened with uh, 300 new rooms. So we're up to a total open occupancy of uh, over 1,100 uh, rooms that are available. 200 of those are dedicated to people who um, are symptomatic with uh, coronavirus symptoms or who have tested positive for coronavirus. And so we're, we're helping those folks stay in places where they won't spread the virus on to members of the community. Um, and you can see those are the top two that are listed. You might be able to see um, that the occupancy rate for those two is 34%. So what typically happens in those sites is the occupancy rate stays pretty low. You know, only a, a third of the beds are occupied. And then all of a sudden we have to do something like evacuate a whole shelter. And so we actually need to have 50 beds free in order to be able to move, you know, folks um, all from that shelter into those beds. And so then the occupancy will go up to 90%. And then as those folks are tested and or you know wait out their quarantine period it'll go back to 30 percent occupancy so we we unfortunately have to kind of have some empty rooms there at baseline in order to be able to deal with outbreaks as they occur um, you know obviously we we want to maximize the um, the use of these rooms you know for people experiencing homelessness but we know that we need to make sure we have some capacity to deal with outbreaks as they occur so below those two lines are um, the, the sites that are for people who are at risk of um, really bad complications if they were to get infected with coronavirus, but they're not suspected of having coronavirus um, at the time that they move into the hotels. Um, and you can see that um, at the hotels, we have an overall 60% occupancy rate, but at the ones that have been open for a while, like the Spring Hill Suites in Newark or the Radisson Inn in Oakland, we're up above 90%. And so we're actively working to fill up these new hotels um, currently. And then there are some trailer sites, um, including uh, the home base trailers in Oakland um, and the Alameda and Berkeley trailer sites as well that are all pretty full. So um, this represents, this 1,000 people represents around 15% of the population of people, or 1,000 households, about 15% of the population experiencing homelessness as of 2019, um, which was the goal number. The governor has made more funding available, and so hopefully we'll be able to go um, past that goal and um, move both on leasing more sites and on uh, purchasing uh, some of the leased sites or purchasing additional sites um, that might be able to eventually be converted into permanent housing uh, for some of the folks. We do have some data that um, we're seeing some of the folks that have moved into safer ground, these sites for people with that are at high risk of medical complications. Some of those have been able to move on into permanent housing situations, so that's been that's been nice to see um, that that the, the coordinated entry system that um, you know that that deals with housing on a comprehensive basis has been coordinating with the coronavirus housing, and we've been able to um, to help folks move use this sort of moment in life to move into permanent housing. 
Uh, can you go to the next slide, Brenda? Um, so you can see we're planning still another uh, 100 or so uh, rooms up to a total of uh, 1,200 um, that, are, that are planned. Um, but again, you know, the governor has made more funding available at the state level, and uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that we, we may even be able to get uh, a few more than that or to at least convert some of these leased um, properties to, to ownership. Next slide. So that's it for the coronavirus update. Um, I don't know if there are any questions that, that anyone has before I move on to just talking about the budget. Um, I have a question, this is Sia. Um, so yeah, thank you for that. It's pretty, I feel like there's, you know, it's unfortunate that we're going through this time in so many ways, but I feel like this is such an incredible opportunity to have people um, in these hotels. Um, and I'm just thinking about, um, you know, it sounds like there has been a lot of work that has been done with trying to coordinate, you know, more permanent housing for those folks. Um, I'm also wondering if there, if we've been able to take the opportunity to also connect people to like, you know, making sure that they have established care providers um, as, uh, you know, having all these people and like, we know where they are, you know, kind of place and having access to them and being able to provide, you know, a little bit more support um, um, whether it be care or, yeah, connecting them to the various resources. It sounds like some of that is happening already. I just, I don't know what the health component of that would be or could be. Yeah. I, I don't know if you remember, but a couple months ago, I presented some data on the safer ground population mm -hmm. showing that, um, you know, based on the county care connect system. So I don't know if we've talked to you about that before, but, um, the county has developed a community health record and social health information exchange that pulls data from electronic health records and from social services databases and from the housing databases across the county. So they're able to do some analyses that can partially answer some questions like the ones you're asking, Lucia. And um, I think a couple months ago, I presented information just on the Safer Ground Hotel that showed that um, uh, really the majority, the vast majority of folks have um, insurance and the vast majority of those are connected uh, or assigned to a medical home. We don't know much more about what's happening with utilization at those medical homes. You know, whether people actually are going to their own doctors or at least having telephone visits with their own doctors, but we do know that people are assigned. Um, we know a little bit more based on our own visits there, you know, just anecdotally, I think not from the data, but, you know, having provided care there, I could say most of the people that I've seen at the Safer Ground site, which is the site, again, for people who are at high risk for complications, um, they do know who their doctor is. They do have a doctor. Many of them um, don't, don't have a strong connection to that doctor. So, so they're coming, you know, often to the van for things like refills on chronic disease medications that they've been off for a long time and since there's a doctor in the area they feel like well maybe let me just go ask if i could get my hypertension medications refilled or my asthma medications refilled and usually we try to use that opportunity to understand more about what's their connection to their own primary care provider whether it's in our system at alameda health system or at another clinic and help them get back connected to those providers 
Um, and I think we're, we're really trying to figure out um, how to work closely with some of the on-site, on-site staff to get deeper into what's happening with some of the engagement issues. But at least at the administrative level, what we've been able to see from, from the Radisson is that um, the foundations of being enrolled in insurance and then having an assigned medical home are there for most of the participants. And now it's a matter of you know, going to the next level to figure out how do we make the having insurance and having a medical home be a real health benefit to people. We have been able to produce, just since I made this, between last week and this week, the county was able to send me back another um, report looking at more of the hotels than just safer ground. Um, so next month I can include um, that breakdown now that we have the data from um, from more of the hotel or the hotel every care connections. Damon, this is Loretta. Um, I have a question. Did you um, say how long these people can stay in the different hotels with their um, with their medical conditions? Is it only the two week um, quarantine time, or are you allowing them to stay longer? So it's different for the different types of hotels. So for Operation Comfort or the Operation Comfort, you know, program, which is two right. hotels, those days are based on the time that you need um, to either isolate if you're infected or if you're suspected to be infected or to quarantine if you're exposed to someone who is infected. And oh. the, the, those lengths of stay are at the longest, uh, about three weeks. Usually it's like your quarantine period plus the grace period. Okay. Um, and then, and then there's a package of supports to help people move out. The success rates in helping folks move from that situation to permanent housing uh, from the initial data I was able to see, which is I think now a couple months old, are pretty mm -hmm. low. Um, so not many of those folks um, you know, are finding that being in the isolation hotel is part of a, you know, is, is, is right. part of a better movement. Um, they, they definitely, the hotels definitely help us interrupt transmission which is a really, really important goal by itself, but they haven't proven to be a really successful housing intervention by themselves. Mm -hmm. That's different from the Safer Ground Hotels. So the Safer yeah. Ground program is now those like, I think there's, you know, 10 plus sites that are trailers and hotels. Those folks stay is indefinite. So yeah. when, you, when you get admitted there, there's no, um, there's no end date on how long, the, how long you can stay. Uh, yeah. But the goal is they're not housing. You know, still you're living in a hotel, and right, um, right. it's not. It, there's not a sense of permanence there. There's not a sense of this is your space that you can do with what you know what you want. You can make it your home. Right. Uh, and so the goal is really to help those folks move into do permanent housing, and the staffing at all of those facilities includes housing navigators from community-based organizations like Abode and Vax and building yeah. organizations that we partner with. And there's been much more success there in moving folks on. I think I think it's a 25% rate or so. Um, I can try to get that data from the county as well before before our next meeting, um, just to give you some updates on how well that's working. But certainly, there's nobody that's being um, that's being asked to leave early from those sites. Early. There are some people who are choosing on their own to leave early, just because right. you know hotel settings aren't for everyone. But um, but it has been working both as a coronavirus intervention and as a housing intervention, which I think right. is pretty exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Thank you. Derek? Yeah. Yes. Derek, um, uh, uh, one of the things that I want to uh, mention that uh, over in uh, Alameda Point Collaborative, 
they just announced uh, a new um, housing project. So I believe it's uh, 200 new homes going in over there at the uh, former Naval uh, Air Station. And that's going to be built over the next year to three years. So uh, is it possible that Alameda Health Systems can connect up with uh, that agency? Yeah, we've already been connected to that uh, project and heard about that project. I think the major way that um, we're connected in two major ways to all of this work. So one is we're by far the largest primary care provider for the patients uh, or the people who are staying at these hotels. Um, you know, we're still we're still not a majority. So um, you know, Alameda County has so many different safety net providers, we're really lucky to have a lot of community-based organizations and community health centers in our area. Um, I think we only have 20% or so, and I think the next biggest is 15%, something like that. But we are the biggest primary care provider for, for a lot of folks. So, you know, almost no matter who's at the naval base, there, it's likely that a big portion of those will be, you know, people that we serve in primary care here at Alameda Health System and in our homeless health center. Um, and then I think the second way is through the mobile health program. and so. One of the things we'll talk about more in the program update is how, you know, just how this is really changing so much of the situation on the ground for our mobile health team. And that's one of the places where we've, we've already been engaged in a conversation about the naval base and just starting to think through how do we plan for what services need to be mobile and then where those mobile services are in the county um, as, you know, a lot of these new hotels are being developed um, and new trailer, you know, uh, sites are being developed. Um, and so we're definitely, you know, part of both of those conversations, uh, you know, an, an important part of both of those conversations. All right, I'm just lowering hands because I think that was both Derek and Loretta uh, there. Um, just like, you know, I, I used to tell, I, I need to get back to making sure I tell you guys some patient stories. So on. Friday, I saw a patient in clinic who um, was recently diagnosed with uh, prostate cancer um, and who has uh, advanced HIV um, and has not been taking any medicines. He lives on the streets. Um, he lost his wife a couple years ago. He had been on and off the streets even when he was married, but he took medicines for his HIV more consistently when he was married. And, um, you know, every once in a while, he and his wife would take a break from each other. He would be on the streets, but he would go back, and she was a real source of stability in his life. And then she passed a couple years ago, and um, really, you know, his HIV became much harder to control, and he's really bounced back and forth between San Francisco and Oakland. He, um, he's been very terrified of the police, and I, I think someone told him something once that he construed as, it's dangerous to have any medicines on you. Um, the police made it seem to him, you know, what he understood from what they said to him um, was like, you could get in trouble for having meds or you could become a target of, um, of violence if you actually carry medications with you. So um, he stopped, um, he refused basically to any meds that I prescribed him because he didn't want to be carrying pill bottles around when he had his contacts with the police, which were really frequent, obviously, when you're, when you're living on the streets. Um, and so he had been not showing up to a lot of appointments. And then for whatever reason, he just started coming into appointments. He didn't have a phone. Uh, he, he still doesn't have a phone. Um, but he'd come into his last two appointments with the urology doctors for his 
prostate cancer, and he'd come into the last two appointments with me. And so we realized we could actually put a housing plan together for him because we had a reliable way of reaching him because he was coming into his appointments. And so mm -hmm. I called the nurse who's been, um, some of you may know, Felix uh, Thompson, who's been doing some of the referrals for really managing the bulk of the referrals from Alameda Health System to Safer Ground. And I called her in the middle of the visit and said, Felix, <laughs> here's the deal. I don't, there's no phone. We're just going to do this. He's going to come back in if we have to. And she said, sure, let's do it. And, um, and yesterday he had an appointment with urology. And then after the appointment with urology, he was able to move into safer ground. We were able to get medicines from the pharmacy um, for both his HIV and medicines to help prep him for the prostate cancer treatment that he's going to get. And he took those medicines with him on the van that took him over to safer ground. And, uh, you know, it was, just, it was just amazing to be able to put together a treatment plan like that with our team at Alameda Health System to have these hotels, to know all the people in the county who, you know, supported this. And it's just a small step on his path. You know, ideally he's going to be able to get um, his prostate cancer treatment now. He's going to be able to be housed while he gets that treatment, which is incredible. Um, hopefully he's okay. going to be able to get his HIV treatment. But it just... Um, I think it just underscores really um, how important housing is and how transformative it's been to have an option like Safer Ground available for some of our sicker patients. And I think the hard work that our staff has done to, to be able to, you know, it's still not easy. We don't really have, you know, great systems or data tracking or whatever. This was a bunch of phone calls and a bunch of people going above and beyond to make it happen. But, uh, but our staff did it and uh, I think he's going to be healthier for it. That's more of an intimate view of like what's going on with these hotels. Awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, let's uh, let's just talk about the budget update. And again, this is kind of a, a uh, just as a way of talking about I think what the one of the most important public budgets is for the health of our population. Um, but again, I think uh, to be aware that you know cities are going through these same processes right now many other public entities are. Um, so last time we talked about how the, the county was going through a budget process. They actually have an officially approved county budget acknowledging that there are still adjustments to come um, that they're required, I think, to, to pass a final budget um, by uh, by the time that they passed this, which I think was in, in July. Um, and so they passed a budget that is really based on the maintenance of effort principles. You can see the, the final FY 2021 budget um, for all funds is about $3.5 billion, which is about the same really as it was last year. So again, this, this idea that um, needs have dramatically increased, and in some cases we're seeing coronavirus-specific spending really make a difference, for example, on the hotels. But across the board, um, you know, the investment in um, these public sector infrastructure and services is about the same as it was before coronavirus, even though we know unemployment's gone up, people are unable to pay rent, you know, rates of violence, rates of domestic violence, rates of mental illness are going way, way up. Um, our budgets are basically, you know, we've, we've finalized the budget that's basically the same. Right, you can go to the next slide. Um, so additional cuts still remain likely, even though this is the final budget. So I think we're starting at a point that we know has implications that are negative for health. And, and we know that probably there's going to be another $121 million shortfall as the projection from the um, county administrator's office. Um, that, uh, that 
projection is much less bad than we thought it could have been. The state was able to um, really uh, make some good adjustments to reduce the amount that it was expected to cut. Um, but then, uh, of course, you know, these conversations that are happening at the federal level um, are going to impact um, what the state's able to do. And um, there's still a third phase of adjustments that may be much bigger than that $121 million adjustment um, to the county budget. Um, you can go to the next slide, Brenda. So um, the county administrator's office lists numerous challenges ahead. CAO, sorry, I shouldn't use abbreviations like that because it means different things in different places. Uh, could be our chief ambulatory officer here at Alameda Health System, but this is actually the county administrator's office. Um, so in, in the county administrator's presentation to, um, to the uh, labor representatives, um, she listed you know, these numerous challenges ahead that include the financial status of our organization, of Alameda Health System, as, uh, as important things to think of. I think within the healthcare world, um, certainly, I think many of you know that um, Alameda Health System, all the safety net providers um, are able to get uh, some supplementary funding through a, Medi a state Medicaid waiver um, that you know, pays for some of our quality improvement programs and pays for some really critical services that we provide. Um, and then um, you know, the county administrator just lists the Alameda Health System financial status um, as you know, an ongoing issue, I think, between our county and uh, and our organization around the required um, subsidy that comes to our organization in order to provide the services that we provide, um, which uh, is you know something that happens in many many counties, but often doesn't happen across two separate entities. It happens inside of a county and other systems where the county hospital remains remains part of the county. Um, so that's always, you know, that's always something that the county administrator points out. And then we have these non-healthcare factors that are also going to affect um, not just the budget, but I think the, for me this is a shorthand for presenting around the health and well-being of the population, right? I think if these, uh, if the ongoing homelessness crisis and increasing public safety costs and pending litigation and structural funding gaps continue, all of that means that um, there's a threat to core infrastructure like affordable housing, core services like behavioral health services, housing navigation, housing supports, you know, core social services, that there are threats to those things which are really foundational for the health and well-being of the population that we're responsible for um, in the homeless health center. So I think, you know, just like last time, I think this is just something I want us to continue to pay attention to over time. Brenda, you can go to the next slide. Um, because um, I think it's easy to focus on health care and lose sight of the fact that the, you know, the, the mission and purpose of, uh, of community health centers and of our homeless health center is really the health of the population and we need to, consider to continue to consider the most important ways that we can provide primary care and other services that impact the health of the population and I think and do advocacy as, you know, as a group. Um, and I just wanted to, to highlight, you know, that we really know um, a lot of health data um, from situations like this, and we need to really be cognizant of this and be planning around this as a society. Um, so this is a review of the health impacts that came out of the Great Recession in 2008 and 2009, and I'll just read the quote, which says, overall studies reported detrimental impacts of the recession on health, declining fertility, declining self-rated health, increasing morbidity, increasing psychological distress, and increasing suicide. The health impacts were much stronger among men. They were stronger among racial and ethnic minorities. 
Importantly, strong safety nets in some European countries appear to have buffered those populations from negative health effects. So, you know, I think my question here to us is what opportunities can we find to prevent the serious long-term health consequences of this recession? We know that coronavirus causes health problems. We know that the associated need to shelter in place causes economic problems that cause health problems. I think we're making this a triple whammy in some ways in the United States by not having the strong social safety net that could at least, you know, buffer some of these health impacts that we know from, from studies um, have worked better in, in other societies. And so I think I just want to continue to think together, you know, with you as a board and with our institution about how we can, how we can try to strengthen the safety net at a time where it really needs to be um, strong in order to protect the health of the people that we, that we serve. And I think that's it for the update formally. I'm definitely open to questions um, if anyone has them. And of course, we know uh, that they're coming down the pike. I was just wondering whether or not there's been any discussion uh, in terms of medical staff and um, directly about um, how other other ways or innovative ways uh, that we could somehow uh, fold some services into another or certain um, procedures or situations. Uh, fold them um, within each other like an envelope so that so that there's a crossover so that therefore whatever structurally might happen from the outside um, uh, will have little damage uh, to the overall integrity of the part if, if I'm making sense do you want to give an example maybe uh, if, if, if one comes to mind oh um, well the problem is I can't think of a I can't think of a, a real relative example. I guess what I'm trying to say, or I guess what I'm trying to ask is, services that might be hurt um, by, by the um, upcoming um, budget upheaval. Um, is there other ways that we might be able to um, to to, um, to save some of those services or save aspects of those some of those services by folding them into other areas, which um, are stronger uh, budget-wise than other than other areas. Yeah, that's a good question. I think um, I might see if Catherine has anything just in terms of Alameda Health System's response. I'm not aware of anything, um, you know, countywide. A lot of the the coronavirus dollars that are coming to the county um, are very specifically earmarked toward coronavirus response. We're trying to figure out how they can give us wins in other areas, and I think the safer ground hotels are probably the best example of what you're talking about, Mark, where we've been able to do something that we know reduces, you know, morbidity and mortality from coronavirus, um, right. safer ground hotels, but also is leading to people able to, you know, get permanent supportive housing, which is always the goal, whether coronavirus is here or not. 
Um, so that's that's a major example of the type of success you're talking about in terms of budget management. I think that's happening at the at the county level, and I think we're going to need a lot more of them um, here inside of Alameda Health System. Um, I, I wonder if, if Catherine at this point has any examples, maybe not, and maybe you know maybe we'll be able to report on some at, at a later date. Yeah, I think it's a good question too. I don't necessarily have anything prepared right now to speak to it, but I can definitely take it back and. Um, yeah, I think it's an excellent question. How do we how do we build on you know resi resilient systems? I mean, I think uh, Catherine and I will be on the same page, saying that you know the core of a health system and the core of a resilient health system is primary care. And I think any opportunity we can find to make primary care a larger component of health system budgets. Um, is an opportunity to advance both health and health equity. Um, I think we've seen that again, you know, from, from data across the world, that primary care is the foundation of strong health systems. So I'm hopeful that, um, you know, as we, as we confront these challenges within Alameda Health System, um, you know, I think we'll be a voice in our homeless health center for ensuring that, you know, primary care is central to that because we, we deal with 90% of problems. We have continuity relationships with patients. Um, we're the ones in primary care, I think, that, um, that can do what you're talking about, Mark, which is say, you know, okay, the problems have changed, but my commitment to health hasn't, my ability to actually intervene hasn't. Um, and so I think that's my, that's my sort of blanket answer, and I think we'll have to come back to you with, with you know, as we're dealing with specific situations, sort of how is that looking on, on the ground. Thank you. Laura, do you have a question? Yes, I have a question. So um, these, um, the people that we're housing in safer grounds, um, do they have access to um, someone in the clinic at all times, or are, is somebody following up with them on their medical needs? And um, now that you know it's going to be autumn and pretty soon winter, and we have the flu along with everything else that we're going to be experiencing, are they taking precautions to like get everyone their flu shots and? Yeah, how's that being handled? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, the, the Safer Ground um, program, which includes hotels and trailer sites now, um, and some city-managed properties as well and scattered sites around, is uh, most of the operators of the services at the hotel sites are housing, navigation, or behavioral health organizations. Mm -hmm. um, the Healthcare for the Homeless program has a medical director who oversees all the clinical services. And so they, they do provide many clinical services directly at some of the hotels, including, for example, like medically assisted treatment, healthcare for the, for the homeless is providing directly for substance use yeah. uh, at some of the facilities. Um, as I said, you know, the vast majority actually of people have insurance and have a medical home that are in the facility. Yeah. I think the question, your question around, act, do they have access to care is what you, is what yeah, I Yeah, that makes sense, right. People are eligible, people are assigned. Um, I think the difference between that and, you know, having great care is, is something that we're still trying to figure out. Um, and, and my experience of being at the sites is that people have uncontrolled chronic diseases mm -hmm. um, and haven't necessarily been working with their healthcare providers in the best ways possible to manage those uncontrolled chronic diseases, and I'm not 100% clear on what the barriers are, 
how we make it work. I think telehealth is working for some subset of the population. It's not working for some subset of the population. Um, in terms of the strategies that we're using, um, so the county has uh, nursing that's available on site that's overseen by their, by their medical director. So they have nurse checks that are happening. It's nursing students uh, for the most part at the safer ground sites, at some of the safer ground sites that are doing those checks. Um, and then we've had mobile health visiting. Our numbers, which we'll talk about in the program report later, in terms of people who are seeking our services are going, have gone way down over time. So at the beginning at the safer ground sites, we were seeing lots of folks. And I think they were figuring out what it is we did and didn't do. And, you know, folks didn't, didn't necessarily their needs, their needs, especially for chronic disease control, didn't necessarily go away, but they realized most of what we were going to do was say, you know, hey, if you go to Lifelong or you go to Tiburcio, they're your doctor. We'll call your doctor with you. We'll help you get reconnected with them. And, you know, I'm not sure that that's necessarily led to better engagement um, with the other providers um, or, or even in our own system. But those are, the, those are the major strategies right now. There's on-site nursing and there's mobile health visiting the sites. And I think it's in front of us to try to figure out how to define that challenge in a way that we can work on it and, and do improvement work, you know, as a sort of complex group of organizations. Right. Um, it's clear that the eligibility and the, and the assignment to primary care home isn't adding up to the type of access that I think you're asking about. Yeah, I think there's, there's probably a lot of barriers. I mean, it could be language, it could be, you know, the, if, a person is documented or undocumented. I, there's just so many things that can play into that. And usually it, what I've seen work is where we go to them, you know. So, like, I'm thinking flu shots, for example. You know, they're not going to be so um, eager necessarily to come in and get a flu shot. But if the mobile van is there and wants to give everyone a flu shot, you know, that's a good thing. And they don't have to come and seek that from us, you know. Yes, I think I think the so we have ha always had an active even even when mobile health was operating in the county when I worked at the county we've already always had a really active and successful flu vaccination program, okay. and I I do think that we will we will end up getting flu that was the second part of your question I'm going to address we will be able to get people vaccinated for flu who want vaccination for flu at these sites, absolutely, um, I I want to do a lot more than that. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. And, and I think I think that can be an onboarding to you know other types of care provision, um, right. but we're going to have to be strategic about you know going beyond that and and saying okay we got your flu vaccination how do we help get your hypertension, hypertension your cholesterol right. you know your your how do we help you quit cigarettes how do we help take care of your depression I mean these sort of like chronic illnesses that include mental illness and substance use issues. Right. I think are going to be more challenging for us to figure out, and, and I don't want to be satisfied with, you know, a great flu vaccination rate. Oh, no, 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 of course not. I was just thinking that, using that as an example because of, you know, still battling COVID, and and that will be coming our way, too. The flu will be coming our way, too, and, you know, that just makes things a little harder to handle, you know. Very much so, yeah. No, I'm, I'm confident we'll, uh, you know, work with the county partners and we'll be able to do the part that we need to do on mobile health around around flu. I'm hopeful we can double down on it and make it part of a strategy to do better around other things, too. Right, right. That's great. Thank you. Okay, I think we can move on to the next item if there's no more questions. Um, 
We have Alex. Uh, we'll talk about roles and responsibilities for board members. Thank you, Lucia. Uh, let me know if you guys can hear me loud and clear. I'm actually having computer issues, so I have to switch over the phone. Uh, but let me know if it sounds Sound good. Okay, excellent. All right, well, thank you, everyone. Uh, so here is one of the reasons why I thought that it would be appropriate for us to revisit some of the board roles and responsibilities. Uh, but, you know, before we get into it, I do want to start by uh, you know, applauding everyone's efforts, and you know, from co-applicant board members to uh, the staff, I think you know it's, it's safe to say say that we have come a long way. We've made a lot of great improvements, and you know, I couldn't be any more proud to be part of this uh, very special group. Uh, and you know, considering that it has been a year, two months later since our first meeting, uh, I think it will be good for us to sort of go over again some of the items that we uh, touch upon during the first orientation, or I guess the first official meeting back in June. Uh, on that note, I also wanted, wanted us to sort of discuss what I like to categorize as you know, uncharted territory, and this is about advocacy efforts. Uh, and you know, this is something that we discussed briefly during the previous uh, CAP meeting, and, and I was thinking about that a little bit more, and, and and I think this is an area that's foreign for many of us. And considering the, how complex the governing board and the structure is of our program, I thought that it would be appropriate for us to sort of start, you know, uh, in having some discussions about what that actually looks like, and you know, what are some of the various things that uh, the co-applicant board can do. Uh, but before we get to that piece, which I think, you know, I think that's going to be a very exciting part of our discussion, you know, I, I, I do want to start by uh, reiterating, you know, the overall uh, roles and responsibilities of the co-applicant board. As you may remember, during our first meeting, uh, you know, we, we touched upon the concept of oversight for the uh, healthcare for the homeless center. Uh, and, you know, what that entails, you know, because, I mean, HRSA hasn't really provided too much guidance around that, but what we took from the very little guidance that we got from there is that, you know, the co-applicant board uh, is responsible for ensuring that, you know, the health center is operating in compliance with applicable federal, state, and local laws and regulations. Now, you know, that, that's, you know, I mean, it, 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 it's a tough task considering, you know, how complex the rules and regulations are. Uh, but I think one way to sort of fulfill those obligations, and I think the CAP has done a tremendous job at that, which has been by being fully informed, prepared, and involved, you know, reviewing CAP materials, uh, asking very thoughtful and logical questions. I think even if at times it may not come across as, you know, you're ensuring that the operations are in compliance with the applicable uh, rules and regulations. Your questions are sort of, you know, although you may not realize that they're actually geared towards assessing, you know, whether or not the, the healthcare for the homeless center has been, you know, or is currently being operated in compliance. Uh, and, and I think, you know, again, I think you guys have done a phenomenal job. And, you know, I do want to reiterate that, uh, you know, or I guess I want to encourage you to continue being informed, continue to like be prepared and involved and take advantage of the opportunities that 
uh, you get, you know, when we send those documents early on, uh, you know, I encourage you to review them so that you can continue to ask those thorough and very thoughtful questions. Uh, so, you know, like that's one of the overall uh, roles and responsibilities of the uh, co-applicant board. Within that, another area that you uh, exercise, you know, some level of oversight is by, you know, establishing and adopting policies uh, that are directly related to the operations of the health center. Uh, as you may recall, you know, from the very little guidance that we got from HRSA and what we communicated to you, uh, the co-applicant board has the authority to establish and adopt those policies as long as they are related to the operations of the health center. And, you know, once again, over the course of a year, uh, you've approved several different policies, including, you know, the ones that establish our operations of service sites. Uh, one extremely critical policy, which was was this sliding fee discount program. Uh, as you may recall, you know, this was, uh, before it was approved, the co-applicant board actually had suggested making a few uh, additional amendments. And, you know, again, that was another excellent way of you demonstrating uh, your, you know, your roles and responsibilities and ensuring that, you know, again, the health center is being operated in a way that complies with all those provisions. And, as you may also recall during the first meeting, when we were talking about uh, certain policies, we made it very clear that the sliding fee discount program was something that was required under HRSA provision. So, you know, reflecting back on, you know, the various different policies that you have reviewed and procedures, uh, you know, again, I do want to applaud your ongoing efforts, uh, your diligence in identifying certain, you know, issues that, you know, at times when we're working on these particular policies, we see it from an operational standpoint, but you know, in practice, that policy may not be, uh, you know, or the end result may not be what we were expected. And I think the, you know, the co-applicant board did a phenomenal job when we were reviewing that particular policy. And, and as I said, I'll, you know, I reiterate that the, the policy was approved with certain amendments. Now, I keep going back to this policy because I, I want you to keep in mind that your effort and your ongoing, ongoing. Uh, due diligence to ensure that, you know, the, the health center is providing the necessary care in a way that's effective and efficient for uh, the, you know, community's experience in homelessness. I want to encourage you to keep doing that around those policies. And I do want to remind you that you do have the authority uh, to, you know, establish or adopt those policies that, you know, you think, uh, you know, may improve or benefit the way the, uh, the health center is operated. Uh, Around that, you know, another key component uh, that you may recall that was discussed was program assessment, right? Uh, and again, you know, we're, this is sort of uncharted territory because, again, program assessment can take various different forms. I mean, it can involve reviewing the financial status of the health center. It could be reviewing quality assurance, improvement assessment, uh, you know, efficiency and effectiveness of the center. Uh, you know, there isn't really one way for us to sort of assess uh, the health center program. So, you know, but, but I, I do want us to talk about, you know, what the assessment looks like so that you understand that, uh, you know, as you're reviewing, as you're engaging in, in all the discussions, as information is being presented to you, I want you to take that information and process it with a lens towards is this effectively, 
you know, addressing their unmet needs or actually just the needs of the community. Uh, that will be, you know, some may say maybe an indirect, but also a direct way for you to assess, uh, you know, the efficiency and effectiveness of the programs. You know, there are more direct ways that we can potentially do that, you know, reviewing financial status. But, you know, I want us to get into the habit and want to continue doing the same thing. Again, as information is being presented, ask yourself, you know, how is this benefiting the program and how is that in turn benefiting the services that we're providing uh, the community? Uh, I think that's, a, you know, it's a critical piece, or maybe I should say it's actually a critical role that you play. Uh, and this is why, you know, we, we established the co-applicant board. Uh, because we want to hear from you. We want to hear frank discussions around what you think based on the information, the information that's provided. Uh, you know, we, but also be mindful of, you know, certain information is provided from an operational standpoint based on, you know, the information that we receive. Uh, but that being said, though, you know, that, that shouldn't discourage you from asking or determining, well, you know, are there other alternatives uh, but where you know, but in a way that we can essentially provide the same services in a perhaps more efficient, efficient and effective manner. Uh, so I want you to keep doing that. You know, again, as information is, is, is provided to you, uh, just keep in mind. You know, I, I want to say that the key components of your roles and responsibilities as a co-applicant board member. Remember, look at it from the lens of you're doing your part in, uh, you know, conducting the oversight, ensuring that we, what we're doing is compliant with those applicable rules and regulations. Uh, also to think about policy, procedures, opportunities, opportunities to amend, uh, opportunities to explore additional uh, policies that may be necessary to address certain issues. Uh, but I also want you to think about, you know, the health center program assessment. As you receive that information, just think about all those three things. Another one thing, and this is where we get into what I like to categorize as a little bit of uncharted territory, uh, which is advocacy efforts. You know, during the initial meeting, or uh, you know, our first official meeting, which was also you know board orientation, uh, we talked about you know the co-applicant board acts as one. We speak, you know, with one voice. So when we when we talk about advocacy efforts. For the program, uh, you know, HRSA doesn't really tell us what that should look like. Uh, you know, it gives the entity a lot of discretion to determine what is an appropriate form of advocacy. Uh, I think, you know, the co-applicant board is it's uniquely placed in a position where you can communicate and advocate on behalf of the program because not only are you well informed of the issues that are drastically affecting, you know, communities experiencing homelessness, but you're also informed of the information that's being provided. Uh, so you have two different sources of information, whereas other individuals may have, you know, just data that's coming directly within the organization or, you know, data that's coming directly from the community. I think the co-applicant board is it's uniquely placed in that you, you have that dual, uh, dual, a dual type of information that's provided to you. Uh, so. As you think about, you know, going forward, uh, think about, you know, what are some potential advocacy efforts? You know, I can say one example will be collaboration with the Board of Trustees. That begs to ask the question, well, what would that look like? I think, you know, a potential, you know, a possible way will be, well, you know, the, the Board of Trustees of Alameda Health System has uh, monthly, oh, well, they have 
concern, meaning I want to say for the most part monthly, where they review certain aspects of the, uh, the care that's provided, and this will be uh, the QPSC, QPSC meaning, uh, you know, the camper perhaps may think about, well, this may be a potential avenue for the co-applicant board to communicate certain concerns. Uh, and, and reflecting from the previous meetings where we were talking about the budget, you know, uh, you know, how can we communicate some of the concerns? How can we share uh, some of the issues that are affecting the communities in a way that will result in some level of action, whether the action comes directly from Alameda Health System or whether that action comes directly from, you know, our partners in communities. Uh, and speaking of partners in communities, I think another way to uh, engage in advocacy efforts around, you know, the health center program, uh, issues affecting the program, is issues affecting the community is potentially reaching out to, you know, other organizations. Uh, and another way to do that as well is, I mean, advocacy efforts can also entail obtaining information as far as what other institutions are doing. What are they doing to effectively provide the services that, you know, we're effectively providing? Is there something that we can learn? You know, should the co-applicant board reach out to other organizations? Should we connect with a subject matter expert, right? Community leaders, so on. Uh, I think these are, you know, two different ways by which, you know, the co-applicant board can engage in our advocacy efforts. I think you've done a phenomenal mm -hmm. job internally within the organization, but I think there are other ways to do it. Uh, I do want to remind and take this opportunity as well uh, to remind us that, you know, when the co-applicant board speaks, uh, the expectation is you speak as a member of the organization. You speak, you know, we all speak with one voice. Uh, why is that important? Uh, because, you know, if the co-applicant board determines that we want to start engaging in more, you know, active advocacy efforts with other community organizations, it's important for us to have, to first obtain, you know, the co-applicant board approval. Uh, because, I mean, one of the, th I think one of the things that we sort of need to be clear on is, as a member of the community, at times you may, you may want to speak about issues uh, that may potentially affect or may directly affect uh, people experiencing homelessness, whether that's, you know, clinical access, mm -hmm. The housing access, etc. I think what needs to be cleared is that you know it's it's acknowledging that you know the expectation is if you're going to speak as a member of the community, then you should you know make that clear. If you're going to speak as a member of the co-applicant board, or you know it's it's necessary for you to obtain the board approval because at the end of the day we speak you know as one, we act with one voice, so. You know, as we start thinking about, you know, what can we do to advocate on behalf of the program, I do want us to be mindful of, again, the requirement that when we speak as a member of the organization, the expectation is that the co-applicant board has fully endorsed and has given you the authority uh, to raise those concerns as a member of the co-applicant board, as opposed to a member, you know, of the public. Uh, and, you know, along those lines, we, we also, it's important for us to avoid creating the perception that we may be acting in our official capacity, meaning as a member of the co-applicant board, without first, you know, obtaining co-applicant board approval. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, that said, you know, I do want CAP members to to understand that, you know, there's nothing that should stop you from 
speaking as a member of the community from raising just concerns. But I think it's important for us to be to keep in mind that you know when we speak as a member of the of the co-applicant board, let's make sure that we're doing it with the uh, approval and endorsement of the rest of the board members. Because at the end of the day, whatever that person said is reflected on the rest of the board members. And I think this is something that uh, we want to make sure that, you know, as we start engaging in advocacy efforts, that we do it in a manner that, you know, adheres to not just our bylaws and, uh, and the self-recipient agreement, but also in a way that, uh, you know, where members don't have to worry about, well, what if so-and-so said something that wasn't really, you know, endorsed by the co-applicant board. Uh, that being said, uh, I do want the co-applicant board to start thinking about, you know, ways to advocate on behalf of the program, uh, ways to communicate those concerns, you know, directly affecting the program, those concerns directly affecting the community. And, and like I said, you know, there may be instances where that will result in, in internal action within Alameda Health System, but I think also, you know, there may be instances where that may affect some level of action outside of that, which may have even a greater impact. You know, we hear about uh, the unfortunate reality that homelessness is going to increase and COVID-19 has sort of added fuel to the fire. So, you yeah. know, as and you know, ask yourself, well, is there an avenue for us to say, hey, you know, this will have far greater consequences. It's not just, you know, uh, the lack of housing, but also, you know, clinical care. You know, as we yeah. see it, there's a lot of barriers uh, for access to clinical care, uh, you know, from individuals that are experiencing homelessness. So I want us to start thinking about that a little bit more. Uh, and, and again, you know, as you think about these things, you know, we encourage you to talk to us and, you know, share your ideas and, and you know, if you're uncertain as far as whether or not this is something that will be permissible, whether that's under the Brown Act or under the bylaws or, you know, the, the self-recipient agreement, I want you to feel comfortable and not be afraid to talk to us about, hey, you know, I'm planning on doing this. Is that okay? Uh, you know, we are your resource, and we're here to provide whatever assistance that's necessary. Uh, and, you know, my goal is for all of us to succeed. Uh, so, you know, I, I'll make myself available to provide whatever level of support that's necessary to ensure that. Uh, so with that being said, I know, you know, I've provided a lot of information. Uh, does anyone have any questions? No, no questions, right? <laughs> I can I ask you, ask you one? Sure, sure. So, um, if I wanted to, I mean, um, if I wanted to advocate for something as an individual, um, what are the best practices around making clear that it's not, you know, this isn't something that necessarily I've talked with the Alameda Health System board about, or co-applicant board about, or, or in my case, you know, my boss is about, but just being a Francis citizen, you know, making advocating well like what are the what are the ways to sort of distinguish that because I think this this board can both be powerful I completely agree with you and want this board to be powerful as, an, as a joint advocacy force where we speak with one voice and I also want you know to retain my own ability to be able to go out in the world and mm -hmm. say things that, that I want to say as well um, right. I, I'm just wondering if you have any sort of best practices I mean I, I've heard one already which is just like call you if you have any concerns and like you're you're happy you're happy to like talk it through with me and i've found that already to be incredibly helpful internally so i do encourage other 
um, Kopkin board members to take advantage of that. But do you have any other sort of recommendations around that? Yeah, no, of course. And, and an excellent question. Thank you for asking that. Uh, you know, one of the things that I can say is that, you know, the mere act of becoming a co-applicant board, you know, you sort of have become a public official, right? A member of a public agency, you know, political subdivision of the state of California. So, uh, you know, people are immediately predisposed to say, well, that individual is a member of the board of directors of the co-applicant board, and therefore the inference is he or she is speaking in that capacity. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the things that I would recommend uh, CAP members to do is to make it very clear from the beginning, uh, and I've done this before, uh, you know, where I go, you know, to speak to like education boards. The first thing that I say is I'm here to speak in my capacity as a member of the public, not in my capacity as an employee of Alameda Health System or, you know, as, as, a, as an attorney of Alameda Health System. So, and I've gotten into the habit of doing that, right? Because that creates any type of uh, misunderstanding as far as whatever comments the board members uh, can make. I think as long as you make that clear from the get-go, uh, I, I think that that will avoid you know potential issues down the line. Uh, that's that. And then the other one is, you know, if you're unclear, maybe there is a little bit of uh, the issues are sort of intertwined where you feel like, you know, you may want to speak about uh, an issue that directly affects the work that you're doing, uh, and then also an issue that outside of that realm, then my, my, my piece of advice would be reach out to me and we can sort of figure out a way to present, you know, this in two separate issues without necessarily sacrificing uh, the point that's, that, that, that's being trying or that is being conveyed. Uh, but I think, you know, again, I, I, I think... The greatest piece of advice that I also received was that, which is, you know, make sure when you're speaking uh, that you clarify that you're here to talk on your capacity as a member of the public. Uh, like I said, every, and everyone has a First Amendment right to do that, so take full advantage of that. Uh, yeah, I, th I think that's where I will start. Does that answer your question, Dr. Francis? That yeah, that's a great answer. Thank you. Oh, great, thank you. Uh, all right. Anyone else? Any questions? Uh, yes, I have one. Do you, Mark? Yeah, yes. I have one. I'm just wondering um, when um, when you address if and when we any of us as members of the Co-Applicant Board, as individuals, uh, should uh, we get in a one-on-one -on -one situation, say with a, a person who's a um, member of the, of the actual Board of Trustees, is there anything in regards to their work and, uh, and maybe specific to our work uh, that we do not share? Well, you know, so here's the deal. Well, I'll start by saying that the easy answer is the information that's shared to the co-applicant board uh, on this meeting, it's all publicly accessible. So, you know, the board of trustees, it's already, you know, aware of this information. Uh, unless this is something that's discussed in closed session, uh, which even then, you know, there may be matters that may still be, uh, it, that it may still be permissible for us to share with the uh, board of trustees. So again, you know, I, because, you know, most of the, our discussions are accessible to the public. 
uh, you know, and so long as you have the authority uh, from the co-applicant board to speak on, be on behalf of the co-applicant board, then, you know, I mean, you should feel comfortable sharing uh, the issues that you want the Board of Trustees to address or the issues that you want to discuss with the uh, Board of Trustees. Thank you. No problem. All right. Any other questions? Okay. Well, very good. Like I, like I said earlier, I reiterate, I'm, I'm here. If you have any questions, if you need any level of support, please reach out to me or please reach out to, you know, Heather or Dr. Francis uh, or Brenda. We're all here to provide whatever assistance that you need. Uh, so with that, that ends my report. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Francis, do you have any, or do we want to add anything about on that, or should we move on to the next item? No, I think we can move to the next item. Okay. I would just, I always add my appreciation for Alexander. I think, um, you know, this is a, sorry, you gave me a chance. Now I, now I have to add something, Lucia. <laughs> I think this is just a really complex context and, and one of the reasons that I was really excited about this job was to be able to work um, with this co-applicant board. I think health center boards with 51% patient representation are a really critical element of an equity-oriented healthcare system. And I think we just have a, such a powerful role in, in, in occupying that space. And I think, um, you know, the, the making good on that role though is like really challenging inside of like four different boards governing the scope of work and all that stuff and I think Alexander just does such good sense making for me inside of that and I really look forward to what we're going to be able to do together you know with with his support and and with with all the engagement that you all show all the time um, so that's that's the only thing I would add Great, so we can move on to the project report. I'm Wait, sorry, where are you? Um, the report up, the final report up. The program report, the, head, the part the that Heather usually says. Yes. So I'll do my best Heather impersonation. Um, <laughs> I, I miss her so much in this meeting, gosh. Um, so we don't have any um, HRSA compliance findings. Of course, those actually would be findings from the county because they're responsible for overseeing our compliance. Um, we've been having regular meetings with them. They've been going well. Um, and, and really, there's, there's no challenges around compliance to report on right now. Um, mobile health, you can see we've actually presented the encounter level data as Neha asked for it last time um, as data over time. So you can see the trends. Um, which I think is a really helpful way to look at the data. Um, so you can see really starting from January, kind of a declining trend, and then between March and April, increased numbers of clinical cases and enabling services. And I think um, that's a lot related to testing that we were doing as part of Mobile Van, which included, we included the testing encounters here, um, as per instructions from the county to include those. And then since then, you know, because many of the sites that we visit, and we've talked about this before, have either pared down or stopped their operations or, um, you know, or um, 
are continuing operations, but are, are doing them in ways that actually make it hard to, to deliver a mobile health service. Our encounters have been going down at some of our baseline sites, and we've been trying to move to some of the new safer ground and operation comfort sites where more of our patients are moving to be able to provide services. I think something else that has been happening at the same time that's also part of our declining numbers is the expansion of um, the street health services that the county oversees and manages. So um, one example is now um, both HEPAC and Lifelong are providing services at St. Vincent de Paul at the shelter there, which was a site that we went to several times a month. And um, at a recent trip there, we realized we're kind of all doing very similar services at the same place um, and, and needed to figure out, you know, who, who should be where. And so as the, as the street health services are expanding, uh, the county decided that, um, that they didn't think that mobile health was best used at St. Vincent de Paul, and they wanted the street outreach teams to be working at, at the St. Vincent de Paul site. And so they asked us to actually stop going to that site. So we're in the middle of you know, this transition phase where we're trying to figure out where do we need to be to actually see people. And there's so much complexity related to the people are in different places themselves, the services are operating differently. Coronavirus means we're seeing people by phone, sometimes even when we're on site, and we're really trying to minimize in-person interaction for infection control reasons. Um, and then we also have an augmentation of the street health program at the same time. So there's lots and lots of things that are happening behind these trends that uh, Heather and I are working with the county to sort through and, and try to figure out, you know, where the best place is for us to be. You can see under letter A that we launched services at home base, um, which is one of the trailer sites. And so that's one of the places where new people have moved in just over the last month. And um, we're now going to, we're now planning to be there twice a month. And on our first visit there, we saw quite a few patients. So that might be a place where we, you know, our services are needed and we can continue to, you know, continue to, to um, actually, you know, be able to see more, more, more patients um, and do the things that, that we know we can do to help people. Um, I see the couple of raised hands. I'm just going to finish the report and then I can take questions at the end about any, I mean, any of it because the last two are quick. Um, under the quality area is where we usually give updates around what's going on system-wide. Our major system-wide focus right now is really on ensuring that we have good data around who is experiencing HRSA-defined homelessness. And one of the important pieces of that is to work with our patient services representatives who do the initial registration and the initial screening of housing status to make sure that they're um, uh, assessing housing status in a consistent way and, and documenting that in a consistent way. So Heather did it, it does ongoing training. The most recent one was done in July. Um, it's actually quite a complex thing to do and quite a complex thing to ask people to do to assess housing status. Um, I think there are elements of our organization that wish you asked two questions and check things off a box. And that actually isn't a best practice and that's not how it works. Um, we're, we're asking for quite a bit of judgment on the part of the patient services representatives and quite a bit of sensitivity to ask about a potentially stigmatizing and sensitive topic um, in an interaction with patients. And I think our patient services representatives do a really good job. And I think um, their supervisors and Heather are doing a really good job trying to ensure consistency around that. As you know, the, data, the underlying data system we use in Epic is only six months old, or you know, actually almost a year old now. But 
it's still relatively new for folks who are using other systems. It's being updated every couple months. Um, it's actually quite a lot to ask for people to, to um, keep track of how to do this in, in the right way with all of our changing systems, forgetting about coronavirus as, as another thing. Um, also on quality, we did, um, as we mentioned last time, um, our CG CAP scores are the way we monitor. It's a survey that we use to monitor patient experience, and we talked about using proxy data from that to try to approximate what does the homeless population experience look like. We can't, we can't stratify the data by homeless status specifically because we can't stratify the data by individual patients um, with the CG CAP score, but these proxy measures are a way for us to get at it, and we've looked at all of these subgroups, and essentially none of them vary very much from the overall population. Um, so we think that our CG CAP scores um, overall probably come close to predicting how we're doing with uh, populations experiencing homelessness. Like, unfortunately, on some of the top line measures of CG CAPs, we're we're in the you know the lower grouping of um, of uh, healthcare systems in general on on um, on uh, how people report um, you know the the quality of their experience. So 80% of our patients say one of the one of the more, more important measures than CG caps is, um, you know, would you rate your provider highly? And 80% of patients rate our providers either a nine or a ten, so pretty highly. Um, but in other systems, it's even higher than that. So um, we're unfortunately still behind the curve of where other systems are. Even though the vast majority of our patients are very happy with their providers, you read the comments and people people are really happy with the service they give and. In a lot of ways, just having 80% of people happy in a context where we face as many challenges as we do is something to be proud of. Um, we do need to need to figure out ways to continue to improve that score as well. And um, again, we think that you know, from what we can see in the data, it looks like the homeless population doesn't look that much different on this measure from the population overall. Again, we're working really hard to stratify every bit of data we can, um, but in this case, it doesn't look like there's that much of a difference. And then in terms of leadership and advocacy, really ex externally, um, this is really more of a quality issue that, that um, I think has to do with uh, things happening outside of ambulatory, which is why we put it inside of leadership and advocacy. So um, it's wrapped up with the idea of wanting to know the housing status of every single patient across our system, including outside of the homeless health center. So the emergency room, the hospital, some of our care management programs, those actually are not parts of the organization that are within the homeless health center, but certainly the patients that we care for in the homeless health center touch those parts of the system. And um, we think it would be really valuable if we had a population-wide approach to housing status so that information that we get in the outpatient setting is usable in the inpatient setting and information we get in the inpatient setting is usable in the outpatient setting. And we kind of have coordinated workflows around housing and homelessness. And so we're really advocating for the, um, the leadership in population health in our organization to take on the issue of streamlining the, the coordination across these programs to inform the data. I think not just taking this on as a data-specific issue, but actually saying, well, we have goal what do we have goals as, you know, as Alameda Health System? What are our goals for this population of patients? Then let's design a data system that actually works against those population health goals. And so that involves some presentations to the Data Governance Committee that is, again, for the entire Alameda Health System um, outside, of, outside of the scope of the Homeless Health Center and, um, and some ongoing just meetings and communication about how we're going to try to structure a system like that. 
of course, we'll we'll continue to update you guys on how that that work is going. Um, so yeah, happy to take questions at this point. It looks like I don't know who the first one was. Um, maybe I'll take Loretta first, and then um, and then Mark. Okay, thank you. Um, so does Alameda County oversee um, the other organizations like Suburbio and Lifelong and Bax and all that? Is, are they all under Alameda County? <laughs> Alameda County contracts for services with Lifelong and Bax and Tiburcio, and Tiburcio Vasquez for people experiencing homelessness. Uh -huh. And so similar to us, you know, they have contracts with other providers, just like our sub-recipient agreement contract. And, um, and they're responsible really for coordinating, you know, where their contracted services go. So we operate yeah. mobile health as a, as a, you know, contract that they pay for. And so we, we are independently governed. We can choose to take mobile health where we want to. And we're, you know, our major funder has a large voice in where we go. So we try to stay pretty coordinated with them around, around what our activities are and, you know, and are really encouraging them to coordinate the system, um, you know, as well as they're coordinating the coronavirus system to coordinate the rest of the system that way. I think it's a, it's a big challenge. I mean, they're doing amazing work in my opinion. Um, I'm really proud of that team. I, you know, I used to work there. I hired some of the people, so of course I have bias, but um, <laughs> I think the coronavirus response is an example of how we should be doing things all the time with, with yeah. really close coordination with a number of partners. But is there ever any collaboration between all these organizations? Like um, like you were saying, we're no, no longer going to St. Vincent de Paul. Well, okay, so who really decides this? Is there ever, um, like I said, collaboration among all these different um, organizations? Because I know, like, Roots has a mobile health clinic as well. So how do you make sure that we're not going the same place as Roots? And you know what I mean? Yeah. So operationally, there's a shelter health manager that was recently hired, and there's a street health manager that was recently hired at, in healthcare for the homeless. And they oversee, the shelter health manager oversees the mobile health operations of all the contractors that go to shelters or drop-in centers or programs. And the street uh -huh. health manager oversees the operations and all the street health. And so they're they're the major parties that are responsible for coordinating, and they're the ones that we that we liaise with from uh, from Alameda Health System. So there is a coordinating function. Um, I think, you know, could we meet more frequently and could we sort of engage with the data more? Yes, I think the competing interest right now is coronavirus and yeah. um, you know the hotels a lot of us are really focused on standing up the hotels and making sure we get things there and so i think right. right now the coordinating mechanism isn't necessarily as involved as um as maybe it would be if we didn't have you know the other the other coronavirus um issue that we're taking on right now but but there but there is coordination that's happening there is yeah I, that was going to be my next question is do you meet very regularly or you know could you meet monthly? Should you meet monthly or whatever? You know what I mean? We meet really regularly with the county. Um, but I think your question about should we be meeting with the other contractors in more of a community setting is a right. good question and one that we've asked the county to. And I think they're um, trying to trying to figure it out what the right what the right approach is, given the resources that they have, you know, and, and all the complexity of our system. Um, but that is right. that's absolutely a question that we've put to them um, okay. around what's the best way to coordinate across you know all these different providers. I think it's great. You know, we live in a county where I think a lot of people would be really happy to have eight you know um, community health center organizations with thirty plus clinical sites. Right. Um, 
but it's, it changes the nature of the work versus if you're like, right. you know, one government managing every, you know, in Rwanda, they just divide up the territory and it's yeah. all one, it's all one health system and that's how it yeah. is. It's a lot easier right. to manage. Yeah, yeah. No, I understand. And then I'm sure it probably has something to do with funding as well. I mean, that, that probably is part of it, wouldn't you say? For example, the, we, we are funded on how many people we serve, correct? Isn't that correct? In part, yeah. They, we have targets for how many people we serve, but the the, the funding is not um, like a, like an insurance claim. So we don't bill, okay. you know, per patient. No, 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 I know. But yeah, there are targets around the numbers of people that we serve. Yeah. Right, and I'm sure the other organizations have the same thing, you know. So I know it's not a competition, and that's not what it's supposed to be, you know. But I can see like with us being taken away from St. Vincent de Paul, it makes it kind of look like a competition, you know. So that kind of concerned me. Yeah, I don't, I don't, no, I don't think it's a competition at all. Um, and I think, um, you know, I would characterize our, you know, relationship with the county as quite good and them as very happy mm -hmm. with the services we provide. Um, okay. You know, there was a point in the coronavirus outbreak where Lucy called me and said, we need Wanda here right now to help. <laughs> and, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's like, there's only one person in the county who can solve the problem that's in front of me right now, and it's oh, Wanda. Yeah and oh. we sent Wanda and Wanda made everything right. So yeah. I, you know, I, I think um, we understand that, you know, we're part of a network of partners and collaborators right. and they right. get that. And, and I think these are challenging times. So I think we're far away from that sort of issue being an issue where it's like, oh, your low numbers are gonna threaten your contract. I, I, we're, you know, if, if we're still in the same place three months from now, that may be an issue, but right. certainly that's not coming up in, in our dialogue right now. It's more, how do we coordinate? How do we make sure we're getting you know, these great resources we have out to people and we understand there's a lot that's changing and we have to manage right now and that's really the nature of the conversation right now. Right, right, right. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, I think, Mark, you had your hand up. Oh, yes. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> I was just thinking about everything you're saying. Um, one of the things I was going to ask, um, and, and, you know, of course, COVID-19 kind of um, threw everybody, the entire country, the entire world in a loop. So um, it's probably not the most appropriate question because it, it really doesn't fit. But, but uh, you know, um, there was a while back um, on another board I sit on, we, there was a discussion about, and we, and we did agree to a basic design, specific design uh, for, uh, uh, for uh, uh, patient, um, a, more or less like a patient um, survey. Um, these surveys were designed to be very short, sweet, and to the point um, because of um, because of the people we serve and the fact that, that they have uh, they have limited attention spans and a, a lot of them do not want to um, write uh, long answers or uh, answer any really complex or difficult questions regarding their person. Um, I was just wondering whether or not, um, given what's going on with COVID-19 um, in the hospital and all, uh, is there any opportunity um, in which um, a survey could be done in a different way, um, say um, by voice with um, the hospital? I'm, I'm not aware of... Um I, I actually know of one uh, effort that I think some managers undertake, but I think Catherine can help me out here around calling patients back, um, 
more directly and more close to their visit time than what would happen with the usual CG CAPS mechanism. Uh, so I know some, some managers have undertaken projects to do that. I don't know if that's a systematic thing across all of our system, but maybe Catherine, you can speak to that. Yeah, I, I, I was only bringing it up because I, I, I mentioned earlier, you were mentioning earlier how, um, um, how um, with some numbers or with some groups of people that um, it seemed like you were missing people. Uh, if, I, if I heard you correctly, there were, uh, you don't know where everybody is or? I think with the CG CAPS um, patient experience data, we are unable to, the, the way the survey is done, it doesn't tie the responses people give to their medical record number because we really want to make sure that it doesn't influence the care. They can give us a, as negative a rating as they want and they're going to continue to get great care, right? We want to make sure people are really confident of that. So the CG CAPS data is not tied to an individual record, which means we can't say this is what people experiencing homelessness specifically think of the services they receive at Alameda Health System. We, can't, we actually can't identify people as individuals. So what we've tried to do is say, well, our population is actually more African-American. It fits more in these age groups. It's more male. Let's see what African-American males in those age groups think um, because we can't actually stratify on those data. And when we, when we look at the data in that way, we don't see any trends that are different than the overall trend in the, in the survey numbers. Oh, uh, okay. We are, we do, and I think you all have seen uh, versions of the uh, homeless-specific survey, which we will be administering on the mobile health van and be able to report back mobile-specific data. And then I do think there are other efforts in some of our primary care clinics that maybe Catherine can talk about to get patient experience data to supplement what comes out of, uh, of CG CAPS. Okay, I right, see. Thank you. Yeah, I'll just add, specifically we do, we'll do like more patient surveying more real time if we have a specific project that a clinic is rolling out and they need to incorporate patient input um, and feedback on a specific project. So it's um, like as Damon described, it's um, clinic specific. We also do them in specialty clinics, for example, like ophthalmology just did some patient surveying as well. So. Um, it's primary care as well as specialty care um, that we can uh, do more real-time, non-CGCAP patient experience data collection. And I would just give a plug for, you know, I think um, in healthcare, we, we sort of default to standard measures as a solution for everything, and as a result, we have um, we have a, pro especially in the United States, we have a proliferation of measures that, relative to other countries that are incredibly expensive to administer. And so I think um, being really thoughtful about which improvement initiatives we undertake and then what's the specific data we want at this point in time. And then once we've gotten it, using it to make the change in the system we want to make and then going back to kind of our default, our default measures. So I think it's a good strategy to have something like CG CAPS at baseline and then to only survey, you know, as you said, Mark, like, that's not what people want to be spending their time doing. Any people, you know, homeless people or any others. Like, I don't want to spend my time doing it either. If, you, if I know you're using the information for something meaningful, it's going to change my life, absolutely. But to just be, like, constantly surveyed about stuff is not where we want to be. So I, I think our approach, our approach is a good one in terms, of, in terms of, you know, focusing the patient experience data that we get on the, on the issues that we want. I think the, the, the questions that 
you know, as, as Alexander was talking about earlier, figuring out how we can raise the types of questions that really drive to the heart of equity issues and drive to the heart of, you know, how housing issues and housing and security issues are affecting the care people receive will then drive higher quality surveys to be used in the right ways to, like, guide actual changes in, in the work that we're doing. And I think our role is to is to ask those questions at a high level in the right way so that we're, we're doing some of that survey and improvement activity uh, on the right challenges. Obviously, CG Caps will give us, you know, big picture. It'll give us big picture swings in, in things that are happening. Um, okay. Great. Any uh, final questions? Um, anything final? Any final announcements or anything from Dr. Francis? Are we, are we done? Are we good with that portion? Yeah, I don't have anything else from the uh, from the program report. Okay. Awesome. Um, so let's move on to the, the last portion of our agenda then. Um, do we have any public comment? And then do any of the co-op board members have any comments? Mark? Yeah, hey, I'm sorry. Um, um, Mr. Pena, are you still there? Yeah, go ahead, Mark. Okay, as long as I've been on this board and other boards, I always get this confused. Um, here we are at, I believe, open session. And, um, the packet I have for this particular meeting has, uh, in this order, open session, public comment, of which I already know what public comment means, co-applicant board member comments, and adjournment. Um, in open session or co-applicant board member comments, which of those two allow me to discuss or propose something to be placed on the, on the next agenda? So, so here's the deal. What's immediately below section E, which is the report discussion program report, uh, that open session should have been there. I think that was inadvertently left there uh, from the last time we had a closed session, uh, which would have required us to report into the closed session and announce that we're back in open session. But to answer your second question, so issues that you wanted to uh, see on the uh, you know, at the next meeting, I think these are things that you have to send directly to the chair of the board. So, you know, you can certainly send that an email and, and communicate some of the things that you want you want uh, them to be included for the next meeting. Public comment is just, you know, or I guess a co-applicant board member comments are just, you know, uh, other comments that you may want to share, maybe, you know, resources that you may have identified or something that you learned of recently that wasn't included on the agenda and we're not precluded from being able to talk about uh, I, I see okay I got it. yeah um, uh, I also want to um, uh, let me also make it clear um, that uh, you mentioned uh, having contact um, with our chairwoman um, the fact of the matter is that, um, at least to my knowledge uh, there it may exist but I don't have one and that is any kind of phone or email tree to anyone who sits on currently on this board. 
So I don't know exactly unless I talk to Heather directly or, or Brenda to get someone's actual email to actually contact them. Yeah, well, we can do it. You know, we can ask Brenda to see if she can circulate everyone's email. Everyone has a designated Alameda Health System email address. Uh, you may reach out to them directly there. Um, right. So Brenda, if you're here online. Uh-huh. Oh, uh, one thing I was going to say, um, uh, I just want to say specifically to Brenda, if she's there, um, I'll have to call you about that very issue tomorrow. <laughs> oh, okay. Um. Every month when I send out the board uh, book, um, all the CAP member email is in that email. Oh, it is? Mm-hmm, yes. Okay, I'll, I'll have to look. All right. Yeah, so and it sounds like, Brenda, can you send it to the list in addition? Um, Yes, I will. Thank you. Okay. Great. Thanks, Mark, for bringing that up. Um, any any last any other comments? Does anyone know if Heather will be returning for the next meeting? I believe so. Yes, she will. Great. Misses you all. <laughs> yeah, I missed her voice. <laughs> okay, everyone. Well, thank you so much for meeting today. We are going to adjourn at 7.12 p.m. Have a wonderful uh, rest of your week, and we will see you next month, or talk to you next month. Okay, everyone thank be safe. You. Yes, thank, you. thank you all. Thanks, thank everyone. everyone care. Goodbye. Bye. Take care. Goodbye.